This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Good evening, and thank you, Dean Marshall. The uh, 2004 midterm presidential election precipitated a great deal of soul-searching among the many Democratic politicians, disconcerted to find that values voters were abandoning them for the Republican Party. Over the past two years, we've witnessed Democratic politicians eager to shore up support among religious voters racing to join their Republican counterparts in showcasing their religious bona fides. House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi established a 42-member Democratic faith working group. Presidential candidates Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama both have campaign staff dedicated to outreach to religious communities. Then, of course, there's Howard Dean, who named the book of Job as his favorite book of the New Testament. While the current glut of religion and politics may leave some secular skeptics desperate for less, I doubt that either of our debaters will argue for that tonight. Both are politically engaged public intellectuals with long-standing religious commitments, one Jewish and the other Catholic. There are, another, there are a number of parallels in their life paths as well. Both pursued doctorates and have held academic appointments, but both ultimately rejected a traditional academic career as too constraining. Both also seriously considered ordination at some point in their lives, and one of them is actually ordained. Rabbi Lerner completed doctorates in philosophy at Berkeley and clinical psychology at the Wright Institute and served as the executive director for the Institute for Labor and Mental Health for a number of years. Since 1986, his primary occupation has been as editor of Tikkun Magazine, a bi-monthly Jewish critique of politics, culture, and society. It was there, in the wake of Michael Dukakis's defeat, that he first called on the left to embrace a politics of meaning. The vision he articulated was picked up by the, by the Clintons during Bill Clinton's presidential campaign, and his alleged influence on, over Hillary Clinton became a point of controversy in the media in the mid-90s. He decided to pursue ordination later in life and now serves, among his many other roles, as the rabbi of Beit Tikkun Synagogue in the Bay Area. Michael Novak attended seminary during high school and college, entering the novitiate of the Fathers of the Holy Cross in 1951. After college and two years of study in Rome, he left the novitiate to pursue a vocation as a writer. He embarked on a PhD in philosophy at Harvard, took a teaching position at Stanford, and then left Stanford to assist Sergeant Shriver in his efforts to elect Democratic candidates to office. Since that time, he's served both Democratic and Republican administrations and now holds the George Frederick Jewett Chair at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy. Above all, however, 
Both are prolific writers who've taken controversial positions both politically and in relation to their religious traditions. As a politically progressive Jewish individual, Rabbi Lerner has raised controversy within the Jewish community over his stand in favor of the rights of Palestinians and among his progressive political allies for his continuing critique of the left's anti-religious biases. He's the author of numerous books, including most recently, The Left Hand of God, Taking Back Our Country from the Religious Right, which aims to undercut the alliance between the Republican Party and the religious right by urging the Democratic Party to champion a new progressive spiritual vision. Mr. Novak, who also started out on the left, broke ranks as his assessment of capitalism shifted in the early 70s to become a prominent neoconservative. In a series of books written since, he sought to foster creative dialogue between Catholic social thought and the classical tradition of Anglo-American liberalism. In his most recent book, Washington's God, Religion, Liberty, and the Father of Our Country, written with his daughter Jana, he argues that Washington was more religious than historians have recognized and adds to the debates over the role of faith in government. He disagreed with the Pope over the advisability of entering into the war in Iraq, gave a lecture on just war theory in Rome, and spoke with Vatican officials just prior to the invasion. So while the official topic of tonight's debate is religion in American politics too much or too little. I suspect that the actual question debated will be what kind of religion do we want or need more of in politics? And more deeply, what problem do we hope or expect that kind of religion to address? I'm pleased to say that our two debaters are well positioned to disagree on these deeper matters. In terms of format, each speaker will have 15 minutes for their opening statement and five minutes for their rebuttal. I'll provide each speaker with a two-minute warning. We'll then have a 20-minute session in which I'll ask a series of questions, and each speaker will have three minutes to respond, followed by 15 minutes of questions from the audience. We ask that you use one of the two microphones in the front for questions. At the end of the question period, each speaker will have a two-minute concluding statement, and after the debate, uh, both Rabbi Lerner and Mr. Novak will sign copies of their books. I invite you now to welcome our distinguished guests, to listen as they address the complex relationship between religion and politics, and to consider the questions that you would like to have them answer. Mr. Or Rabbi um, Lerner will begin our debate. Thank you so much. Um, it's wonderful to be here, to be in Santa Barbara again, to be at the university that uh, has distinguished itself by its willingness to create a very serious and deep religious studies program here that's respected all over the world. And so it's an honor to be here. Um, and also thank you so much to the Roop Foundation, to Arthur Roop and the foundation for creating this kind of uh, discussion. I'm going to just jump in, and um, I, with 15 minutes, I'm going to talk as much as I can, as quickly as I can. 
The dominant religion in the United States is the religion of capital. It has no fear about being in the public arena. Its values and its faith have shaped every public institution. Its loyalty oaths command the allegiance of everyone who calls themselves a professional. It has shaped the universities and the school systems, and it controls the media. The religion of capital worships money, power, and fame. Its holy men are the people who have made, made it in one of these dimensions. When you ask, um, when you look for wisdom, you're directed toward the corporate leaders who have managed to accumulate more money than anyone else. The Bill Gateses, the Soroses, the Warren Buffetts, the Donald Trumps, and you can name many more. They advertise themselves with their money and talk about the little guys who had to try to challenge them as self-promoters because the self-promoters don't have money to buy big publicity outfits to have, um, to have, so they have to be self-promoting with their message. Religion of Capital um, has its high priests who sing its praises from morning to evening in the well-funded think tanks of Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. It has its columnists, <clears throat> its editorial writers in every major newspaper, magazine, and television network. Its central belief is this, that which is real is that which can be measured or subject to empirical verification through our sense data or through extensions of our sense data. And the primary thing that uh, allows us to understand the worth of anything is that which can be verified in this way most easily, money, power, and fame. Money is the core because it is easily measured and easily verified. And those who have power and fame usually have or soon get money. Our economics in, in this society are all based on this way of looking at the world. We take as the fundamental assumption about economics the following notion, that institutions or social practices, in order to be considered efficient, rational, or productive, must show that they maximize money, power, or fame, and the more they do so, the more efficient, productive, or rational they are deemed to be. When you ask economists what's the foundation for this view, they are quite astounded because they're part of the religious system that worships these gods, they think it is obvious. When pushed, they say something like this, that money, power, and fame are what everyone wants, and that anything else that they want, say love or kindness or spiritual or ethical integrity, can't really be the subject of their inquiries since these latter are only subjective goods which cannot be measured it being obvious to them that the only things that can be called objective uh, is that which can be measured or subject to empirical verification. So this is what it means to be in a religious system. When you're in it, its fundamental belief system is just obvious and not subject to any possible question. But why would I call this a religion? Because like every other religion, its fundamental beliefs have no foundation except belief. Let's take the statement that that which can be known or can be considered objectively real uh, is that which can be intersubjectively verified through sense data or measured. Now, what is the measurement or sense data verification for that statement? What is the measurement for the statement that productivity is to be defined in terms of accumulating money or power? 
there is no verification for these foundational statements because they are statements of a religious system. Now, I'm forgiving this religious system the same rights as every other religious system. But I reject the view that being in that religious system is somehow being on a higher intellectual level of sophistication or morality than the other religious systems. It is a religious system. It has its own values and worldviews. And in the contemporary world, it dominates our public life, controls every major institution, and defines who and what is considered rational and productive. Given the ascendancy of this worldview in the last 200 years, and its total domination of public space in advanced industrial societies, and now increasingly in every society around the world, the traditional religions have found themselves having to locate themselves in relationship to the dominant religion. Almost all of them, certainly in the Western world at least, have found themselves split between two possible reactions. One, which you'll find for sure in Judaism and mainstream American Protestantism and Catholicism, is to cuddle up to the dominant religion and to find the many ways in which one's own religion really works well with the dominant religion. Now, as Western capitalism has had as its major themes in the past hundred, hundreds of years, the goal of economic and political domination of the rest of the world, those who tend to cuddle up to the dominant religion and the subservient religions, like Christianity, Judaism, uh, uh, and uh, Islam, emphasize themes like human beings are, fund are evil um, or have a tendency towards uh, destructiveness. They can't be trusted uh, to do anything but seek their own self-interest and to dominate others in order to advance their own needs. And given this, the best thing for all of us to do is to find ways to support that domination First, by honoring those who are best at it, from the gladiators in our boxing rings and football stadiums, to the gladiators who represent us in the military currently helping destroy Iraq and threatening to do the same in Iran, and cheering on those who have proven themselves realistic by their ability to amass money and power and control others. I call this perspective the right hand of God. Um, yeah, because in Exodus it says, your right hand God, your right hand is filled with power. People in this part of the religious world cheer on those parts of their religious texts that give foundation for the notion that domination of others is really a good thing and what God wants uh, is for us to be secure by achieving that domination, by accumulating money and power and by defining every other path as unrealistic. The second tendency in the subservient religions, Christianity, Judaism, uh, Islam, and so forth, is that of the left hand of God. The name of my, my current book, my, the last book that I've written, The Left Hand of God, and the view that God has a message of love and caring, kindness and generosity, that God really does believe, as said in Leviticus, that we must love the stranger, the other, the poor, the homeless, the immigrant, the landless, and that that love has to manifest not only in an inner feeling, but as a central part of how we organize our economic and political systems. For those of us in the left hand of God tradition, 
The path to safety and security is through kindness, generosity, and finding ways to manifest our sense that everyone on the planet is equally a manifestation of God, created in God's image, and deserving of being treated uh, as such. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with texts in both the, uh, the Hebrew Bible and in the, what um, uh, Christians call a New Testament with Jesus' retort to his followers that when people meet him at a later point, he will say that they abused him because they abused the least among them by failing to feed, clothe, and protect the powerless. In my view, every existing denomination in Judaism and Christianity at least, which is the ones that I'm more familiar with, not able to speak equally um, well about other religious traditions, uh, that each of them has within them a strong right hand of God grouping and a left hand of God grouping. And in my view, the Catholics, Protestants, and Jews um, who, are, who share a right hand of God vision have more in common with each other than they have with the people in the left hand of God uh, camp in their own religious traditions. That is, uh, in their same denominations, they have less in common with people in their same denominations who come at uh, the world or come to the world from a left hand of God perspective. Now there's one more complicating factor here. While the right hand of God people are able to have a much more profound impact on the public sphere, because they share more values with the dominant religion of capital than do the left hand of God people, they, like the left hand of God people, have by and large bought into the notion that the public sphere should be left to the religion of capital, either convinced by the reasons or by the power of those who shape the public discourse. But there's a real problem in the public sphere because the daily life experience of a very large number of people in that public sphere, as the dominant religion has, of capital has become more powerful, is that, that there is a crisis of spirit, what I call in my book a crisis of meaning or a spiritual crisis. Because although the values of money and power dominate, a growing number of people have found that the way that this society is organized does not meet their fundamental human needs, which are needs for love and kindness and generosity and for a life connected to higher purpose, a purpose-driven life. And what I've shown in my book, The Left Hand of God, is that the society based on capitalist values not only can't meet these needs, but in fact is increasingly making it harder for people to find love and, mean and to find meaning. I'd be happy to explain why this is so in the Q&A period, though I documented based on my study of some 10,000 middle-income working people in American society that's been conducted by myself and colleagues over the course of the past 30 years. The short of it is that when you spend all day learning how to look out for number one and maximize the bottom line of money and power, you shape people who are find increasingly difficult to sustain loving relationships and who find very little place for meaning in work. The crisis is so bad that people are desperate. They manifest that in alcoholism, in drug abuse, in TV abuse, in random violence, and much else. But also in seeking religions that will challenge the bottom line of the society or provide them at least with a refuge from it and a powerful alternative um, and that is why evangelical Protestantism and Catholicism have grown so dramatically and are now challenging in some ways the sanctity of the public sphere and its religion, insisting instead that they should be able to introduce their own religion into the public sphere. 
the reaction of liberals has been, no, keep separation of church and state sacrosanct by keeping all religion and spirituality of the out of the public sphere. But this position makes no sense to the evangelicals and others on the religious right, at least not to those who recognize that the public sphere is already dominated by a religion, the religion of money and power. So these groups, representing right-wing sensibilities on the one hand, but also having it within them, often unarticulated but nevertheless real there, an anti-capitalist sensibility on the other hand, have become attractive in part because they are the major alternative available to most people to the dominance of the religion and values of the capitalist order. And that, in fact, is what is so appealing to many people around the world about Islamic, Hindu, Jewish, and Christian fundamentalisms, precisely because they provide a language that is an alternative to that of the dominant religion that is increasingly powerful globally, even when they do it by appropriating some of the discourse of the right hand of God. So what is, two minutes, okay. So what is needed in the public sphere is not a return to the never existing neutral public sphere, but rather, an alternative to the dominant religion that doesn't require suspension of intellect or suspension of generosity of spirit towards those who are different from us. In short, what is needed is a spiritual left. And that is what I have sought to create with Sister Joan Chittister and Cornell West in creating the Network of Spiritual Progressives, an interfaith organization that includes people who are not religious or believers in God, as well as religious people, but all who have a spiritual consciousness and share our central call, call for a new bottom line. Um, and to make that precise, what we are calling for is a new definition of productivity, efficiency, and rationality. So the institutions, social practices, legislation, whether, um, whether we're talking about schools, whether we're talking about um, the, the uh, court system, whether we're talking about uh, the health system, whatever we're looking at, that institutions be judged efficient, rational, and productive, not only to the extent that they maximize money and power, but also to the extent that they maximize love and caring, kindness and generosity, ethical and ecological sensitivity, enhance our capacities to respond to the universe with awe and wonder, and enhance our capacities to respond to other human beings as embodiments of the sacred. Well, with my one minute left, or 30 seconds, I wanna say that this idea of a new bottom line, which is central to building a progressive spiritual vision in the public sphere actually has concrete consequences. It's not just a, um, a slogan. And for one, I'd like to point, to point out to you, and I will be handing out for people uh, during our question and answer period, a shortened version of this. But this ad appeared today in the full page ad in the New York Times, it was put there by the N Network of Spiritual Progressives. And its, its headline says, an ethical way to end the war in Iraq. Generosity beats domination as a strategy for homeland security. It talks about the need for repentance in relationship to the war in Iraq. It talks about the need for a global Marshall Plan. In short, the idea of a new bottom line of love and caring is not simply a slogan, but it actually has very specific consequences for how to do politics. This is a different kind of vision for the public world. It is a vision of a, a place for religion, uh, a place for spirituality in the public sphere, but it is a spirituality that transcends any particular religion because it, uh, it unites all of the different religions, or at least the left-hand vision of, the left hand of God vision in those religions. A world of love and caring is not an, an 
empty slogan. It is a vision for a very kind of different world and a world that's absolutely fundamental for the possibility of survival of the human race in the 21st century. Thanks. Well, thank you very much for having me back to campus. I'd like to uh, uh, recall in beginning Walter Capps, who began inviting me down here in the late 1960s. I was teaching at Stanford, as Rabbi Lerner mentioned, and uh, uh, or Anne mentioned, and um, um, it was a great joy to come down here. There used to be a January intercession, a month-long special set of courses, and I did that at least twice, maybe three times, and came back later to lecture here, usually under his sponsorship, a number of other times. Uh, one thing I love about this part of the world is uh, when I taught at Stanford, I had to get used to the fact that you start eating outdoors in the sun in February, and in March the swimming pools are opening up. And uh, in April, my first April, I was very young, and uh, the students in my seminar persuaded me to have class around the swimming pool, at Palo Alto Swimming Pool, which sounded plausible to me. And uh, as I was starting, uh, one of the young ladies was twirling a nose plug so, and it flew out of her hand and plopped into the pool, at which three of the young guys made as if to go retrieve it for her, and she said, stop. She said, I want Professor Novak to do it. <laughs> now, as I say, I was quite young, and this impressed me a great deal. And I said, uh, why me? And she said, because nobody I know can dive down deeper, stay down longer, and come up drier. <laughs> uh, now, I think it's a form of cruel and unusual punishment, actually two forms, to feed your speakers just before they're expected to speak, and secondly, to ask professors to speak for anything less than 50 minutes. I mean, you just don't even have thoughts that short. Um, <laughs> but as the rabbi learner kept the rules, I'll do my best, and I just ask Ann to run it like a basketball game, and when the whistle blows, uh, it's over. I'd like to make three basic points uh, to begin with. First, I want to talk about uh, phrase of Jürgen Habermas, perhaps the best-known atheist uh, philosopher in Europe, the end of the secular age. Second, I would like to talk about the American experience and something special about Judaism and Christianity in that experience. Um, they're poor religions, they're uh, often humble and broken religions, but they've had extraordinary importance that I want to talk about for freedom, for conscience. And last, I would like to talk about religion in politics at the founding, because if we're talking about is there too much religion or too little, let's use the founding period as, as one measurement. Jürgen Habermas has written a series of essays after September 11, 2001, expressing his astonishment, his awakening after that awful day 
to the fact that atheists like himself were an island in a large and turbulent sea. He hadn't quite felt that before. Uh, he could see the growth of religion, not the decline of religion, uh, all around the world. And he felt that there, he, he, the end of the secular age didn't mean he was going to stop being an atheist, not at all. But he did think that atheists needed to make some changes and religious people needed to make some changes. Atheists needed to show respect for religious people, a kind of mutual respect. To stop speaking of religious people as deluded or under illusion or poison or all the other dismissive things that, that secular people tend to say about religion, even calling themselves enlightened by contrast with the dark. Um, kind of built-in bigotry, I think, into the very self-description. And Habermas thought that. He also thought that atheists would need in this coming age to admit how many of their own principles they subtly derive from Judaism and Christianity. Fraternity, for sure. But also liberty and equality in their modern understandings. That is, liberty of conscience. And equality. That's not a Greek notion or a Roman notion. Uh, Plato and Aristotle thought inequality, even slavery, were natural. Many people have the souls of slaves, and they deserve to be slaves. And there are people of gold and people of silver who are capable of freedom. That notion is overturned by the penetration of Judaism and Christianity uh, into the pagan world. For religious people, he thought it was important that they begin to appreciate the medicine, the prosperity, the political institutions of the modern, not entirely, but in good measure, secular period. And furthermore, in his debates with then Cardinal Ratzinger, Ratzinger challenged him to a public debate on this, Ratzinger made the point that reason, especially in the form of common sense, not in the form of positivism of the sort that Rabbi Lerner was ably dispatching, Reason is needed by religion to, to dispel the toxic effects of religion unaided, to temper it, uh, to bring it a kind of wisdom that it, other it might not otherwise submit itself to a certain kind of criticism. So that's what, Rath what uh, Habermas meant by the end of the secular age, a new adjustment in the way secular and religious people think of one another and a new conversation necessary if we are to survive. It's not as if the friends of liberty are vast in this world. They're rather few. And we're, we're going to need everybody we can get to survive. Second heading I want to talk about is there's something special about Judaism and Christianity that's usually overlooked in the history of freedom. And what's special about it about them, uh, let me put it this way, Judaism is the main teacher of our political values in the West. Practically all the statements of the founder, founders of this country about politics come from the Jewish Testament. 
a few um, given to God the things that are God and to Caesar the things that are Caesar um, come from Christianity. But that's not even in contradiction with, with Judaism. So they're, they're not one and the same, Judaism and Christianity. For instance, it's easy for Jews to distance themselves from Christianity, to reject it as tr not true, as false. It's not possible for, for Christians to have the same attitude toward Judaism because one of the premises, one of the underpinnings of Christianity is its growth out of Judaism. There's an asymmetrical relation between them. But what I want to stress here, then, is that most of these concepts I want to talk about have their origins in Judaism, though they happen to be developed in this country by Christians. Take the concepts of religion and of God and of conscience used by uh, George Mason, James Madison, and Thomas Jefferson in the Virginia documents, the Declaration of Religious Liberty, the Declaration of Rights, in Madison's Remonstrance in 1785, uh, nine years later, and in Jefferson's Bill for Religious Liberty. Now, the definition of religion given in the Virginia Declaration of Rights in 1776 is this, religion, or the duty which we owe to our creator and the manner of discharging it can be directed only by reason and conviction, not by force or violence. And therefore, all men are equally entitled to the free exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience. And that is the mutual duty of all to practice Christian forbearance, love, and charity towards each other. That last sentence suggests the Christian providence of this immediate thing. But the basic point doesn't apply just to Americans or just to Christians or just to Jews. It applies to all women and all men across the world. To Buddhists and Muslims actually came up for a vote in the Virginia Assembly, whether in this text or another which came later, which spoke of the divine author of our religion, should be added the name, Jesus Christ. And it was voted down on the ground that it was clear enough as it stood and that the principle they were arguing for went beyond Christians, went beyond Jews, was universal in bearing. It's an, it's an ordinance of, I, I think, um, extraordinary self-denial or self-restraint, arguing for no rights for oneself that one does not also concede for all others. Now Madison and his, his remonstrance nine years later begins by repeating this same proposition. Because I hold it for a fundamental and undeniable truth that religion, or the duty which we owe to our creator and the manner of discharging it, can be directed only by reason and conviction, not by force or violence. He just picks up the motif from Mason and Jefferson, in his bill, picks up exactly the same sentence and repeats it. But Madison goes on, The religion, then, of every man must be left to the conviction of conscience of every man, and it is the right of every man to ex exercise it as these may dictate. Now, he goes on, and I don't have time to read the whole quote. It's, it's really quite marvelous. But 
the point of it is this that's not usually called attention to. This definition of religion, this conception of God as spirit and truth, concerned more about what happens in our conscience than about our outward behavior. And this conception of conscience are Jewish and Christian and no other. You don't find them in any other tradition in the world. That's what I think is precious and a special contribution. Everybody makes a contribution. But this is the great contribution of Judaism and Christianity to political life. This principle of religious liberty, this principle of respect for conscience, this principle of respect for evidence and that religion should be founded on, must be founded on this. Now, they argue that you have a duty to your creator because, as they explain, if you understand the meaning of creator and creature, it's obvious you have a duty. It's self-evident. A duty at the very least of gratitude. Everything you have, you owe to the creator. But if you have that duty, two things follow. One, you have to have the right to. If you have a duty to the creator, you have to have the right to exercise it. And two, nobody else can interfere in that. It's inalienable. Your mother and your father can't exercise this right in your place. Only you can do it. You can say yes, you can say no. It's your liberty. But it's only yours. And it's also, as Madison goes on, it's precedent. Comes before civil society. A notion quite different from John Locke's. It doesn't come after the formation of civil society in the act of the contract. It comes before. Now, uh, um, I'll come to the last part. Religion and politics at the founding, I can say only a few things about it in the time available. The largest church service in the United States during the Jefferson administration was held in the just completed U.S. Capitol building. Jefferson himself attended when he could, which was quite often, read prayer book under his arm. And he also insisted on having music supplied at federal expense by the Marine Band. Where was the ACLU when we needed them? And they might have stopped us right in the beginning. There, the declarations of the Congress, these are now official declarations, political declarations of the Senate and House, begging the repentance of the people and the pardon of God for the multiple transgressions of the American people, severally and collectively. Days of thanksgiving, days of petition, These are frequent, almost annual, official acts of the government of the United States. Third, Washington himself in his public prayers, both as general and as president, spoke often and frequently of the providence who interposes himself in human affairs, and who did so in our experience. This is not a theory, he, he argues implicitly, this is something we experienced in the recent war. And he frequently, during the war, cites vivid examples of how the breaks happened when they were needed for the Americans. They believed this this something they hoped in. It was irrational to make war 
on the greatest army and the greatest navy in the world when you didn't even have an army or navy. You didn't even have a munitions factory on this side of the water. But they thought that the reason the creator created the whole world is to extend his friendship to every woman and every man. And if it's friendship, as William Penn said, it has to be free. They must be free to accept or to reject this. He didn't want the friendship of slaves, spiritual slaves. Um, well, I'll just have to leave it there. I, I would say if there were time, it, it, it is worth it to look at the words of the Battle Hymn of the Republic sung by the Union Army um, marching through the fields all over as they fought to preserve the Union and they fought to end slavery. And see what inspired them then and the talks of Lincoln at that time. And then measure whether we have as much or too little religion in America by the, those standards. Thank you. from here? Okay. Um, well, here, I'll ask somebody to hand out these things while, is there somebody in the audience who can, is there anybody who could pass this around to, these are copies of the thing in the ad, ad in the T New York Times today uh, with an opportunity for those of you who might be interested since we're attempting to reprint this ad in newspapers around the country, particularly in the red states. Um, and um, in congressional districts where people have not yet come to a clear understanding of the, um, the ethical tragedy of this war, um, to articulate a different language of opposition to the war that isn't just the language of the left, that it's a language that is a spiritual language that calls for a repentance, not just for, uh, and talks about what will happen afterwards, um, because from our standpoint, the United States should not be seeking simply to get out of Iraq um, as though the liberal world wants um, detachment from the world. We've been too involved in the world and we've only been bad in the world and so forth, so we should get out of it. We are saying something quite different. We think that the United States has a positive role to play in the world um, to, and we talk about a, a fundamental change in the paradigm of foreign policy from a paradigm that says a, that homeland security comes through domination to a paradigm that says, no, the best way to achieve homeland security is through generosity, through caring for, uh, for other people. I hope that, um, you know, I, I was listening, very impressed with the intelligence, the decency, the, uh, the humility, um, the kindness of, um, of Michael Novak. And, um, and so it's hard for me actually to reconcile how he could also have been the person going to the Pope to argue against the Pope's denouncing the war, the war in Iraq and, uh, and, um, and for championing what has been one of the not only greatest um, strategic errors in recent American history, but also the greatest, one of the greatest moral errors in recent American history. Um, and for all the account of the high values that were held by our founders, I'd love to have him 
explain what it was that was wrong in the original conceptions that makes it possible for a president and his, his administration to uh, suspend the basic principles of the Constitution, to allow for torture in the name of the, of the, of, uh, the American public, and to do it, uh, God forbid, as a, as a desecration of God and everything at least I believe in in God, to do it in the name of God, to do it in the name of a religious vision, to, to present this as though this is what um, the Western religious traditions have come to is, um, is the kind of war that we're waging in Iraq and the kind of torture and suspension of human, human rights and the invasion of our own homes that we're reading about every single day now in the newspapers, or I don't know if they cover them here in Santa Barbara, but certainly in the national newspaper, in the, in, the, in the New York Times, you can get it. Um, the, the destruction of civil liberties and so forth. Um, what is it in the original conception that would lead to this reality? I'd like to, I hope that he'll address that more. I know that Arthur Roop was concerned that we, that these, uh, we don't have enough tension in these uh, discussions and there isn't a real debate. And I tried to start off giving as much as I could to raise um, Michael Novak's temperature a little bit, but I failed completely. <laughs> so, so I'm hoping that maybe these, these remarks will satisfy Mr. Roop uh, that, that um, being a little provocative. I, 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 do, I do wanna also say that um, I'm here to invite, I, um, I'm not here primarily to win an argument. I'm here to invite those of you in this, uh, in this community who think that there is something right, correct about what, what I've been talking about about the notion of a progressive spiritual vision. And again, I emphasize, you can be a believer in God or you can also be a spiritual person who doesn't believe in God or isn't part of a traditional religious community to be part of our network of spiritual progressives. But you understand that there's something in the spiritual vision of the world that is important and that needs to be introduced into the public discourse. And that is going to challenge realism where from my standpoint, from the standpoint of actually of, of Judaism, God is the force of healing and transformation in the universe, the force that makes possible the transformation from that which is to that which ought to be. And hence, idolatry is being a realist. Uh, idolatry is accepting that which is as your criterion for that which can be. And uh, so it seems to me that most of the religious traditions of our, of our country are full of idolatry, and they are, uh, they are Hellenists in drag. They accept the basic reality of capital as it stands and the basic reality of power as it stands, and they try to fit in there. And this isn't a problem for conservatives. It's just as much a problem for liberals. And, um, and I watch with, uh, with uh, ex exceeding upset as I see the Democrats in Congress trying to maneuver so that they won't go too far towards a principle and stand with that principle, lest that there might be consequences for them in the next election. And I say the one thing that I have a lot of respect for in the right is their willingness to stand with their principles and lose by them. If you cannot lose, if you're not willing to lose for your principles, you will never actually win anything with your principles. So I, I'm, but I'm arguing for a different kind of vision of politics, a non, non, um, non-pragmatic, non-utilitarian, 
a, um, a non-instrumental view of the world, a view of the world that recognizes humanity as uh, the human beings all over the planet as equally valuable, and extending the good things in, uh, in what Michael Novak talked about in terms of that American vision, extending that to the entire universe, extending that to every human being, to treat every human being as a fundamental embodiment of the sacred, and to respond to the universe, the physical world, not in a purely instrumental way, but to recognize, to respond with awe and wonder and radical amazement of the grandeur of creation. I believe that this is central for saving the planet in the 21st century. I think that you cannot get an ecological consciousness sufficient to make the kinds of transformations in the global economy that are necessary unless people have a fundamentally different attitude towards the universe that is not about, it's all there just for us to consume and take as much as I can get and for me alone. And the world was just for me and I try to get as much as I can for myself. This requires a different spiritual vision, not only a different politics, but a different spiritual vision. And the social transformation that's needed, which I believe is a fundamental transformation of our economic and political systems globally, requires a spiritual vision, uh, what I call the globalization of spirit instead of the globalization of selfishness. That vision of a world that is, that in which we can take seriously the possibility of love, of kindness, of generosity, to make our foreign policy based on generosity and not simply on what's in it for the United States and how much can we get. I want to see a candidate that gets up and says, not only God bless America, but also God bless every other people on this planet. I want to see, see a, new, a new vision that is articulated in politics. For those of you who think that there's something in that, come help us do that. Join our network of spiritual progressives. Help us get this ad reprinted in other places in the country. Become part of a movement, um, not just bemoaning what's happening, but becoming involved in transforming it. We need a chapter here in Santa Barbara. We've got thousands of people already in this movement. I hope you'll become part of it. Thanks. When I was growing up, um, most religious people in this country were on the left. Certainly Catholics and Jews were in the northern cities. And the Bible Belt was yellow dog Democrat. I'd rather be a yellow dog than vote Republican. Um, the left lost those people. And Rabbi Lerner has some fairly wise things to say about uh, how it lost them and why. Um, but it did. I can remember when I was talking against the war in Vietnam, one of the, uh, had, was on the advisory board of the, the founding board of, uh, 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 not the founding board, but the, the board of, of uh, uh, clergy and laity against uh, concerned about Vietnam, uh, was to urge religious people, especially in the evangelical churches, but elsewhere, not to interpret religion, Christianity in any case, as a private telephone line to God, but as a people of God, called to build the city of God, that kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, as the Our Father teaches us. It's a social vision. It's a vision of remaking the world over. 
in the, under the uh, ideals which are names of God in the Jewish and Christian tradition. Truth, justice, um, liberty, love. And uh, that's a huge task to which Jews have been called from the very beginning. Now, uh, another thing I, I will note about my, and, and that's one thing that drove me more and more from the left. Uh, I wasn't knocked off my horse one day on the way to Damascus. It wasn't a sudden conversion, but it was just an accumulation of watching things of the left that I had supported, the war on poverty, etc., and watching them fail. And New York City, the richest city in the world, go bankrupt with more liberals in it than any other city. And uh, crime rates quadruple in 20 years. And family, older people were very much helped by the war on poverty. But watching the disintegration of families among poor people in Washington, D.C., the ethics capital of the world, 70% um, of the children are born into families without fathers, unmarried women with children. That's the fastest growing body of the poor in the United States. Uh, we didn't intend to cause that, but gosh darn it, it happened. Now, another part of my education was that any, Paul Tillich used to say at Harvard when I was there, any serious Christian must be a socialist. He thought capitalism was uh, almost as, actually more demonic than Rabbi Lerner. Um, you, you could take some lessons in anti-capitalism from uh, uh, Paul Tillich. Um, liberal arts were anti-capitalist for aristocratic reasons, looking down on work and sweat, um, preferring the liberal arts, the non-sweaty arts. Um, and social sciences were mostly collectivist in their vision, not the individual. And as Marx said, uh, I don't believe this, but is the, the point he made has a thrust to it that's worth uh, thinking about. Social science is applied Marxism. Um, so it was very difficult to be a capitalist. You never heard about it. Uh, when I wanted to publish a book on my own reflections on it, because it puzzled me how, if capitalism is so evil, all the poor people that I grew up with were moving out of poverty. And all those immigrant neighborhoods, Western Pennsylvania and elsewhere. There's something happening here that's not happening to my family of Slovak, the center of Europe, to Slovaks who went to other countries, it's not happening as it is here. So something's happening here that nobody's calling attention to. But I had a hard time finding a publisher for the book with the name, it was called The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism. Most of my friends, there were very few neoconservatives in those days, also were unhappy with it. They were socialists in their background. It was really hard for them to put their names, I mean, their support even indirectly behind something in favor of, of capitalism. So um, I don't think there's anything easier than criticizing capitalism. I'm willing to bet that the vast majority of students here don't hear a lot of good about it. And they're, as I was, brought up to be anti-capitalist. I don't think that's difficult to, to criticize. As for uh, Iraq, I served in the Human Rights Commission for two years in 81 and 82, 
President Reagan's appointee there in Geneva. And uh, looking back on that, I often, there were some very good things we did, but I often regret very much that we never spoke about abuses of human rights in the Muslim world, particularly the Arab world. Yet, the Arab Development Report, written by Arab scholars themselves, describes the lack of democracy, the changing of governments by assassination, uh, or by birth, by, in monarchies, and the abuse of human rights all the time, by secret police, by religious police, and tortures of the most extraordinary sort. Uh, so what is it? Human rights are for everybody else except for Arabs or Muslims. Um, democracy is for everybody else but them. They also had great bodies of the world's poorest people, or very poor people. Though despite the great oil wealth, it wasn't coming through at the bottom edges of society. And um, where was the hope? Where was the opportunity? Where were the open horizons? Uh, that's why I thought it was very important to change the direction of that part of the world, to introduce hope and opportunity, the practice of human rights, the practice of democracy. You can only do that if people want to do it. You can't thrust it upon them. Um, but I thought it was very important to change that direction. And I don't think the story's finished. There have been more articles and books written in the Arab world in the last two years, or three years, about democracy than in the whole history of that region. The ideas are there. And I believe people will look back on this period as one of great creative um, gain, even with all the losses and all the mistakes, all the, the uh, faults that you want to mention. Well, that's at least my contribution to answering the questions, the good questions that uh, Rabbi Lerner has brought up. Well, thank you, both of you. Um, I think maybe let's stay on this topic of capitalism for a little bit longer here. Um, for both of you, in, in your remarks, Rabbi Lerner, very forcefully um, talking about the religion of capitalism, clearly it's the central negative thing in the vision that you're, that you're spelling out, or at least it came across that way to me. And here in the latter part of your remarks, you turned to the subject of capitalism. Um, I was drug into it. You were drug into it. But I guess I'd like to drag you a little bit further. Um, because it seems to me that in your, your life history, that's been a central transition toward a more positive view of capitalism. So I'd like to hear you both talk a little bit more about your understanding of the moral effects of capitalism and how the religious vision that you're advocating um, relates to that. If you think back a while, David Landis, the historian of economics from MIT, has a wonderful book. I think it's called The 
Wealth and Poverty of Nations, in which he points out that up until about the year 1400, Chinese uh, civilization, and above all, Islamic civilization, had achieved a higher level uh, in medicine, in mathematics, and in a number of areas. And then, quite suddenly, although it had been gestating for a long time, uh, the part of the world in which Judaism and Christianity had the greatest impact uh, started to shoot by it. And thinking back on that, he thinks, he argues that, and he's, he's not a believer, he's, he describes himself as a secular man, that nonetheless, the teachings of Judaism, picked up by Christianity, one of the contributions that Christianity made is to make the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob known all around the world, and the ethical teaching of the Jewish Testament. Um, the teaching about the importance of work, the vocation to work, the goodness of work, so that wherever you are in society, high or low, um, to work is not, you shouldn't be ashamed of working. It's your vocation. And secondly, you have a vocation to create. Like the creator, you have a vocation to invent, to discover, to make new things, to discover new sources of wealth. There was no oil fruitfully used in the Middle East until after 1909, when the British-American consortium dug the first oil wells there having invented the piston engine in Cleveland and the process of refining crude oil into gasoline in Pencil Western Pennsylvania, um, and conferred by that fact enormous wealth on that part of the world. In China and India, beginning about 1980, uh, in the switch to capitalism in both countries, over 500 million people have been lifted out of poverty. It's the fastest and largest movement out of poverty in the history of the world. Asia used to be the poorest region of the world. It's no longer the poorest. It has jumped way ahead of Africa, which is now the poorest. In short, I came to think, that, came to realize that much as everybody despises capitalism, it's the best single method of helping the poor to rise out of poverty. It worked in this country. It works wherever it's tried. And uh, I don't see it. Furthermore, one of the things it teaches is cooperation. Uh, one of the most extraordinary things about the United States is how well things work. Uh, for instance, I was in Atlanta once, and I needed to get a, uh, I'm sorry, I needed to get a taxi from the hotel out to the airport. It's a pretty long way in Atlanta. And would there be a, car, a taxi available at 4 in the morning? You can count on it. I didn't believe it. But by golly, there was. And I asked the fellow why he did that. Nobody wanted him to do that. He just liked to avoid the traffic. And there were good fares, mostly going out to the airport. So he did this wonderful service for his own motives, but it was a very good human service. Nobody ordered it. It wasn't planned. It wasn't collectivized. But it happened. And things like that constantly happen in this country and in every country uh, where capitalism is introduced. So I finally assist him. I thought uh, Rabbi Lerner was talking about a kind of positivism, uh, measurement, math. I find that more common in universities um, than in uh, the business world, where uh, uh, human relations uh, make up such a high part of the actual life of the corporation. Thank you. Mm. We don't live in the same world. <laughs> I mean, 
uh, we don't have the same facts about the world, so it's, it, and it's hard to, it's hard for me to, in a short while, try to challenge what everybody is taught. I mean, the notion that our universities are seething with anti-capitalism is wild from my perspective, completely wild. It was wild in the 60s. These were minority positions. To talk about anti-capitalism being pop popular, is there a single candidate for president now or any time in recent history that you, could re that you could think in either of the major parties that would dare say that they were anti-capitalist? Ridiculous. They would, be out, they would be out of the running immediately. The notion that this is somehow a debated perspective in the public sphere is just no connection to any reality that I know of. So, um, uh, similarly, in regard to what is going on in the world, let me just say that, uh, and here I do document this in my, um, in, in my book, The Left Hand of God. The work that I did was with, not in universities, but with middle-income working people. We interviewed over 10,000 people in groups that went for eight weeks. So it wasn't like drive-by sociology, where you talk to somebody for a, you know, a few minutes, have them fill out a form, but we got to know people. And in the course of that, they went from talking about what they thought was the right answer, because most people, when they're asked by pollsters, what do you think about something, they don't think, what do I think? They think, what is the right answer here? What am I supposed to say to the pollster? But as we learn, listen to people, we learned about their daily life experience. And of course, the central thing in most people's daily life is that they go to work. And in the world of work, they very quickly learn that there is a bottom line that the bottom line is to maximize money and power for those who control those institutions, and that they will be out of a job if they can't show that either directly or at least indirectly that they contribute to the bottom line. With that comes a way of being in which people learn to value what the bottom line is there, and that is money, and it is power. In, in nonprofit institutions, sometimes it's also the egos of the people at the top, but for, for the... For the but for the profits uh, sector, which is where most people work, it's money and power. As people come to see that that's the bottom line and that their future depends on their ability to represent themselves as contributing directly or indirectly to maximizing that bottom line, they learn the common sense of the world of work. And the common sense is this. Nobody is here to look after you I'm, or me. I'm here to, uh, if I don't watch my own back and protect myself, nobody else will. It's a it's a dog eat dog world. It's a world in which looking out for number one is the common sense of the of the world and um, of, of the world of work. And as people told us this, um, they were telling us it and saying that this is how I've learned to look at other people, not because I'm a bad person, but because this is realism. This is the only possible way you can be in the world of work and survive here. And looking out for number one means that I have increasingly that we see other human beings as um, in instrumental terms. What can you do for me? How can you be of use to me? What can, what can you do that will advance my interest? If I have to give something to you back, fine, okay, that's, an ex that's a contractual exchange. But basically, the frame that I see you in is that frame. 
or to put it in religious language, it's a frame of unlearning how to see human beings as created in the image of God and seeing them in instrumental terms. Well, when people bring this home into the rest of their lives, they end up with a way of dealing with other human beings which undermines loving connection, which undermines families, which makes it extremely difficult for people to maintain loving, uh, 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 loving relationships in a long-term sense. As I say, I try to explain this I see you want me to stop, so I'll stop. But I'll say that these dynamics play out in the whole society in ways that really undermine the possibility of loving and caring relationships. And there is a deep crisis as a result in capitalist societies about love, about caring, about generosity. I'm going to ask a follow-up question that will allow you to elaborate on this a little bit more. I'm also going to try and keep you now to two minutes so we leave a little more time for questions from the audience. Sure, absolutely. Um, the follow-up question has to do with core values. You guys can decide who wants to go first on this. But um, in your case, Rabbi Lerner, it's, it strikes me that compassion is the central value that I've heard you talking about. And with you, Mr. Novak, I'm hearing liberty is a central value. And I'm wondering if you agree with my characterization of these as core values for each of you. And if you do, um, I'm wondering if you could tell us why you're taking that or some alternative as your core value and how that may relate to the core values of your tradition or in your case to the research you've been doing. I'm not. Why that, those core values? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I, I share a commitment to liberty and to freedom that uh, um, Mr. Novak art articulates and that um, is a central contribution that I believe libertarians and conservatives make. And I'm very glad that they're in the conversation and continually raising those issues because I think that none of the other things that I want are possible unless that is also part of the mix. Um, but at the same time, um, uh, I'm committed to love, caring, kindness, and generosity. That's how I would put my core values. Love, kindness, um, love, kindness, well, as, okay, um, ge uh, generosity, but I'd also add into there awe and wonder uh, at, at the, um, at the um, amazing reality of the universe um, and with it, the God of the universe. So where do I come to this from? Well, I, I, I come to it from my religious tradition. I come to it as a religious Jew who is commanded to love, uh, to love not only uh, the, the God of the universe, but to also love my neighbor, but not only my neighbor, but the stranger, the other. And I'll tell you something, I never learned this when I was growing up. In Hebrew school, they never emphasized this point. They never taught me about that. It was in the Bible, but I never, I, I really didn't get it, that very strongly until I became an actual student of the Bible and uh, in, in, uh, in seminary, at the Jewish Theological Seminary where I was at. And um, that notion of that God commands that love um, was central to my, my religious thrust. And, um, but it, sent, it also became something that I realized was um, a value, and I hear I agree with Mr. Novak entirely, it was a value that came from our tradition that has become part of, at least, well, 
of, of the larger discourse, and I'd say of the liberal and progressive traditions, that a lot of the liberal and progressive people in the, the planet, although they are atheist or, or secular in their consciousness, actually reflect religious values, and in my view, are more servants of God than many religious people who say these words, but don't actually act as though they love and care the other. Well, I, I agree with you on this point, too, that, well, you didn't say this, but I, I take it from your life story. Uh, I don't know of any people in the world who sets a better example of giving, caring, generosity, and so forth in the Jewish community of this country and elsewhere. I mean, it's just quite extraordinary. And I frequently hold it up as a model for, for Christians. Well, we learned it from the Jewish people to begin with. But um, I think, Anne, your, your uh, sense that I speak of liberty first is, is not quite right. I said friendship first. Mm -hmm. The reason God created the world is to offer his friendship. Now, this sounds strange. It sounds odd when I said it once at AEI. Uh, one of my economist colleagues said, you don't understand. He said, the cockroaches are going to last a lot longer than human beings. When there are no more human beings, they're going to be cockroaches. So why not say the cockroaches are? Well, uh, God offered his friendship to every man and every woman. And that means also that for all together. I mean, it's a family. One, notion of the, one thing the notion of the creator does is it equalizes all of us. Everybody he has created. That's why I call the chapter my ideal vision in, in the uh, universal hunger for liberty. That's why I call it Caritopolis, the city of love. Caritas is the unique kind of love that God exercises, not human beings. We, we aspire to it, but it's a gift from him when we get there. And um, uh, it's from that that flows uh, the idea of liberty. Now, a coming colleague of mine at AEI, professor at Syracuse, where I used to teach, has just done a book on patterns of giving in the United States. And I think much to everybody's surprise, it turns out conservative people gave a lot more than progressive people. I think one of the most astonishing things about the United States is the extraordinary number of people who work in not-for-profit corporations and not-for-profit enterprises, including universities, uh, cancer hospitals, and, and all kinds of other things, philanthropies and all kinds. I think it's almost a third of the working force. And second, the extraordinary uh, generosity and help that we give to universities of that. There's nothing like this in Europe, where people contribute money to universities, where things are endowed, things are, new programs are built and so forth, by, by the concern of private citizens for the future of the country. I mean, Tocqueville already mentioned this. When Americans do things for the common good, they always say it's in their own self-interest. You know, they get more out of it than but in fact, it's for the common good. And when you've, got a, when you've got a country that teaches that it is in your interest to help the common good, you've really got something quite powerful, I think. So I, I, I think there's just a lot more good things going on here um, than, uh, than are often noticed. OK, thank you. My question has to do with the relation of religion, spirituality, and politics. And that is, both of you, when you talked about core values, said that in, in a great way, they come from your faith traditions. Um, and, and yet both of you have been in situations where you've been in tension with certain aspects of your tradition. Um, uh, we talked about the Palestinian issue, we talked about the Iraq war, um, certain issues in which the conservatives, neither the conservatives nor the liberals in America sort of neatly fit with any particular faith tradition as a whole. You mentioned both hands of God. Um, to what extent does the 
two-party system or realities of American politics force religious people to basically ad adopt the um, platform of one, liberals or conservatives regardless of wh where their faith tradition stands and, and, and what should win there? Should it be your, your, um, our, your or our political allegiances um, with the way things are or is it the role or, or is someone in the faith tradition um, obligated to vocally disagree where they think their um, usual party of choice or usual side is, is sort of uh, getting off on the wrong track and I'll just that's that's the question I guess um, let me I think I've got it um, and the what what or maybe this is a free association to your, your question um, people um, bring their values into the public sphere all the time. I don't think religious people or spiritual people should be any disempowered from bringing their values into the public sphere any more than, any, than secular people should. Um, I am against the establishment of any particular religion, but I am not against people arguing in a, um, for their values in the public sphere including how those values get translated into legislation and so forth. I think that it's important for people to be able to do that. What I've been trying to suggest um, with my talk this evening is that it's not that there's a public sphere that is a neutral public sphere. The public sphere already has a set of values. They are the values of dominant capital. They have a tremendous impact in all of the debate that goes on in this country. They define what seems to be reasonable and what seems to be out of the mainstream. And I would argue that the positions that I'm articulating about love, kindness, generosity, uh, awe and wonder are out of the mainstream. They are not values that you hear articulated in the public sphere, either in political, um, political uh, elections or in actually shaping the decisions. And that, by the way, is why I have often said, even though tonight I'm defining capital as the dominant religion, I also said I'm for tolerating the religions. I'm for tolerating all the religions. And I don't consider myself anti-capitalist. I consider myself to be a, an agnostic on the question of what the rest, best economic system is. I only know what the best of what, I don't care what you call the economic system. What I care about is when you're sitting in the boardroom, when you're sitting in the co congressional um, conference between the, the House and the Senate deciding what piece of legislation gets, actually gets passed, when you're sitting in the White House, when you're sitting in the places of decision making, what's your bottom line? What is it that you actually count? And if you're counting, of money and power and the power of the United States or the money of the corporations, et cetera, as your bottom line, that's very different than the values that I want to see. The bottom line I want to see is one that not only focuses on money and power, but equally focuses on love, on generosity, on kindness, on, on generating a consciousness of recognizing the other as an embodiment of the spirit of God and recognizing the universe with awe and wonder. And if you're doing that, I don't care what the name of your social system is, I'm for it. Are you willing to let that stand as your concluding statement? Sure, sure, let's make the... Okay, we're gonna let that stand as uh, Rabbi Lerner's concluding statement quite eloquent one. And how about if, can you respond to the question in a general kind of way that really sums up your central points? Well, I agree that the poor of the world 
are a major duty. I mean, the, the, when Adam Smith wrote The Nature and Cause of the Wealth of Nations, um, a historian in a British newspaper commented that of the 750 million people, as I recall the numbers uh, present on Earth at that time, about 38 million were living in relative li uh, political liberty. And the vast majority were extremely poor. Uh, in France, they were soon to be known as Les Miserables. Um, and that was one of the more developed countries of the world. Um, since then, we've come to a point where two-thirds of the Earth uh, four billion out of six point something billion um, are living in the, by all historical standards with greater medical care, greater longevity, and greater affluence and opportunity to do things, universities, etc., than ever before in history. And we still have a third to go. In other words, we're, we're not at the end of the vision yet that we said before. And that duty is incumbent on us because Judaism said that. True religion is to care for the widow and the orphan. And Christianity talked about visiting the sick and the prisoners and feeding the hungry and so forth. And humanists. Um, uh, Richard Rorty says that he, his most important theme is compassion and looked at from the other side, solidarity. And he recognizes quite freely that these he borrowed from Christianity and Judaism. They don't come from the Greeks or the Romans or directly from the Enlightenment. But he says you borrow where you can. It's part of the enlightenment to borrow where you can. And those are the, so, I, you know, humanists also have these virtues of caring. So there is something there to begin working with. Then you can do, we may have disagreements about what the world of reality is if you talk in five-minute segments, but these questions are resolvable. There's a whole empirical record on them. And we can knock down one another's sources or records, whatever you want, but you can reach, if, if you're willing to sit with a, case of brandy and drink enough of it slowly, you can achieve disagreement, which is the hardest thing to attain in the world. It, it, most disagreements are not disagreements, they're just misunderstandings. To achieve real disagreement where you finally see what it is the other person holds that you don't hold is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a long long bit of work. Um, now, I, I also agree with Rabbi Lerner on this last proposition, that there is a values crisis, and I put it this way. Um, and I think I may have been the first to write about this in public life, um, talking about 30 years ago or so. We spent the first part of the 20th century fighting off a great political threat, which said democracy is, is doomed. Democracy is talk, 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 talk. It does nothing. The, the path of the future is dictatorship. And we fought that off successfully because of the horrors that dictatorship brought about. And the world learned that democracy is a very bad system, but compare it to the alternative, it's better. And um, the economic system, you know, I don't want to repeat myself, is doing better than the economic systems have ever done in the past. But where we've fallen down is we, in the fight against communism and socialism and against Nazism, we forgot the source of our own values. And we forgot to think through the way our values ought to penetrate everything. Business schools do talk a lot about the bottom line. But that's not what business lives by. Business will not live unless there are decent and good relationships among its people. Any firm that seeks just power and wealth is going to go out of business. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. 
For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.